0: All right. Well, good evening, everybody. Getting into the last few weeks of, uh, of this series. And what I find the most interesting, because this is the stuff that um, we'll probably most be dealing with if you're ever getting into conversations, there are obviously groups, the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Um, there are uh, people that think that Jesus never claimed to be uh... what we believe him and who we believe him to be and so tonight we're going to talk about what the early church thought about who jesus who jesus was and so we're going to talk about the div- the divinity of jesus how far back that goes and why it was such uh... maybe a hard sell for lack of a better word i want you to kind of think about if if maybe the united states got overrun by China or something like that. Really alien, different, completely different culture than, you know, not like England beat us or something like that, but but, uh, a country with a very different uh, philosophical worldview. And you're dealing with that every single day. Now, obviously, you would want to preserve as much as you could uh, your own culture, beginning with your religion. But what you would really have to be careful about were the subtle kinds of shifts, the compromises. And when, so when you look in the Bible at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees were the ones that they were the, the patriotic nationalists. They were very, very right-wing. They held tight to their culture, uh, whereas the, the Sadducees and the Hellenists were the ones who wanted to compromise and get along and let's not rock the boat, let's make everything as smooth as, as we possibly can and so if you're talking about an environment like that I want you to think about a new religion that comes on the scene and is declaring to this completely monotheistic culture that is very very nationalistic and very guarded I've, I've used this as an example before when have you ever run into a Philistine you've never run into an Amalekite have you but you've run into plenty of Jews because they were so protective of their culture ...that the culture still exists. Whereas all those other cultures that we read about in the Bible have disappeared. They've gone, gone the way of, of the dodo. So when somebody was to come in like the Romans... ...and take over who were pagan, pantheistic, believed in many, many gods... ...and you're a monotheistic culture, imagine Christianity trying to rise up in that... ...and not only be fiercely monotheistic but say that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At least twice a day, an observant Jew would say the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, you've you've heard that. All right, so they would recite that at least a couple of times a day. And so now this group comes on the scene and is talking about, well, yes, we're monotheists, but they're talking about the Holy Spirit is God. They're talking about Jesus is God. ...they're talking about the Father as God. It would have been very, very confusing... ...and it would have been very, very difficult... ...to try to get this group of very guarded monotheists to buy into it. So, what has happened is that through the centuries... ...people have come along and said, come up with theories like... ...well, you have to understand that Jesus didn't really claim to be God... ...and His early followers didn't really say that He was... And so, that he was sort of like Muhammad, that he was the prophet, he was the successor of Moses. And it was only after Constantine, only after Christianity became a primarily Roman religion, that Jesus became divine. We're going to talk about that tonight. Whether this is an early tradition or a late addition. Now, Dan Brown, uh, he claims, he wrote uh, the Da Vinci Code, he claims that Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was both proposed and voted on by the Nicene Council... ...in the 4th century. <laughs> what now? Yeah, okay, I know. <laughs> okay, I thought you were going to make a, make a comment there. Um, yes, I, you know something about the Nicene Council. Uh, so, And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in the study. Uh, but the Nicene Council actually rested on one single uh, letter. <laughs> that's, that's what the division was. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that later on. But uh, there are Muslim and liberal scholars who claimed not to see anything in the New Testament where Jesus himself clearly affirmed his own divinity. So let's look at the historical context. Like I said, the first century Jews were stubbornly monotheistic. There is a popular idea circulating that Jesus was a product of Hellenization, which is the cooperation between the Jews and the, the pagans around them. It's not accepted by even liberal scholars. So, biblical scholars, even ones that don't particularly believe in Jesus and the divinity of Jesus, don't accept that theory. Were Christianity to have started somewhere else besides Jerusalem, the idea might be worth exploring. But the fact that Christianity was born out of first century enemy-occupied Judaism makes this idea completely implausible. I've seen people, for example, on uh, on, on different, you know, on the interwebs, Saying things like, uh, well, it was like just a regurgitation of of Egyptian creation myths. Just as ridiculous. First of all, the Jews had a long history with Egypt, right? (laughs) I mean, this is like, this goes way back. So, if you were going to try anything, you wouldn't try to recycle old Egyptian myths... ...and sell them to Jews, they'd be, well, you know, I recognize that right off the bat. No, that's not what it is. So people who try to claim that, and again, we can talk about that later on in the next couple of weeks or so. But Christianity not arose in such a monotheistic context. It embraced the same convictions uh, as the monotheistic Jews... So it's implausible to suggest that radicals bent on Hellenizing the religious system of their day. If you see the word Hellenize, it just means to, to basically Romanize or make like, you know, kind of the Greek way of thinking. Um, it would be implausible to suppose that they would uh, embrace the fundamental tenets of that system to where it would constrain their own teachings to that, to that degree. The doctrine of the Incarnation was a serious, serious obstacle to the church's mission to Judaism. I would submit that were there not so many Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, it would have never flown. The only reason that the Jews were able to embrace... You know, in many synagogues, they will not preach Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53. They won't go there because it's too clear that this is about Jesus. When you read Psalm 22 and you see passages like a company of dogs surrounds me. Well, what, what were dogs at the time of Jesus? Does anybody know the answer to that? What, was that? what did that refer to? Pagans, right. Remember when Jesus said it is not right to take the children's bread and throw them to the dogs. And so what Jews would often do is they would insult you with, by comparing you to a particular animal. Remember Jesus talked about Pharisee. Uh, or, or, I'm sorry, talk, talk about Herod. And he said, go tell that fox. Right? So, it's not, it's not good to take your pearls and cast them before swine. So, they would take the characteristics of animals and use them as... And so, who surrounded the cross of Jesus? Well, all of his disciples fled. Who was around it? The Romans. And so, you read in Psalm 22 about a company of dogs surrounds me. They've divided my garments among them and cast lots... ...for my clothing. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The problem with that was crucifixion... ...when Psalm 22 was written, crucifixion wasn't going to be invented... ...for another thousand years. And it wasn't invented by the Jews. It was invented by the Romans, as far as we know. It certainly wasn't invented by the Jews. So here's... You have this prophetic psalm. uh, Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to the slaughter... ...so he opened not his mouth, right? So that whole passage is just clearly speaking about Jesus, and, and, and so much so that, like I say, a lot of Jews to this day won't go into kind of Bible studies that talk about those passages because they're so clearly about Jesus. And so when you go through the, the, the prophets, whether it's Micah, Jeremiah, Daniel, you see so many references to Jesus. Um, we were, the men are doing a, a, a Bible study through the Psalms. And you'll see a couple of songs, Psalms by David. And he's talking about the cleanness of his hands and he's lived a blameless life. And you're like, wait a minute. This, this, David didn't live a blameless life. Would David have boasted? David's speaking prophetically. He's speaking about Messiah. He's not talking about himself, he's talking about Messiah. Uh, And and, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus speaking that on the cross. So, without those prophecies, I I don't know that it would have been embraced in Jerusalem. Jesus himself acknowledged that he was the scandalon. Well, what does that word sound like? Scandal, right? Scandalous, It, it means to be a stumbling block. In the early church, ...saw their mission primarily to Jewish people. They were taking up what Jesus had done... ...and they were preaching to the Jews. It wasn't until there was a great persecution in Jerusalem... ...that Acts tells us that the church began to spread... ...into pagan areas. All right, so let's think about the biblical context. Uh, We talked about Mark's gospel beginning with the words... uh, ...the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God... ...and climaxes with the Roman centurion declaring... "Truly." This was God's Son. Now, what this is is called an inclusio. And this was very common in writings of that day where they would begin either a paragraph and sometimes an entire book with a statement and close it with a very similar statement. It would climax with the statement. So at the beginning of of Mark's gospel, it starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and climaxes with the Roman centurion declaring, truly, this man was the Son of God. Uh, Mark also points to the fact that Jesus' disciples were very slow in grasping this. What's interesting is you read other religious writings of the time, uh, they really kind of make heroes out of their main characters. What we see in the scriptures is even though the disciples, the apostles, wrote the gospels for the most part, they didn't gloss over the fact that, you know, one runs away naked. Peter chops off the ear of the high priest and then disowns Jesus three times. We don't see them glossing over, you know, buttering over the the mistakes the disciples made. They really didn't understand who he was. Um, They worshipped him, but then in the next chapter they doubt him, right? So you'll see Jesus calming the storm and they're falling down saying, worshipping at his feet. Who is this that even the, you know, calms the wind and the waves? And then the next chapter they're doubting him. ...or the next chapter they're focused on an earthly kingdom. Luke's gospel begins with the supernatural conception of Jesus... ...and states from the outset that Jesus would be called the Son of God. Jesus would be called the Son of God. Matthew tells us that Jesus would be called Emmanuel... ...meaning God with us. And reminds us again who Jesus is as he ends it with Jesus' words... ...I am with you always... ...to the end of the age. This is an inclusio, right? So the very beginning of the book... ...you see Matthew saying he will be... ...he is the fulfillment of the prophecy... ...Emmanuel, God with us. And at the end, what does he say? I am with you always... ...even unto the end of the age. And that's the end of the the great commission. And and so Jesus is promising us... ...as we fulfill, as his church fulfills... ...the great commission... ...he will not abandon us. Uh, John states it most clearly when he writes... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's, there was no doubt that to the early disciples, Jesus was who we believe Him to be today. This idea that He somehow became a God over time doesn't line up with Luke 1.35. It doesn't line up with Matthew one twenty-three. It certainly doesn't line up with John 1. From the very beginning, the disciples were presenting to the world, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, let's look at Jesus' claims of divinity because that's, to me, more important than even His disciples' uh, claims and, and proclamations. First of all, He forgave sins. Now, some people say, well, you know, I can forgive sins, right? But think of how, again, scandalous that would be Think of, of, you know, somebody striking somebody in this building. And and I say to the person who struck the person, I forgive you for doing that. Wait, Wait a minute. Who do you think you are, right? So if somebody strikes you and you forgive them, that's a very noble thing. But if somebody strikes you and somebody else pronounces them forgiven, that's a scandalous thing. That was not something easy... And you would immediately say, as the Pharisees did, who can do what you just did except for God? Only God could do that, right? So if I strike somebody and God forgives me for doing that, we would all say, okay, well, God has the right to do that. He's sovereign. He's God. But for another person to do that, <laughs> that, that, that was mind-blowing. And so he forgave sins, which his critics recognized was the domain of, ...of God alone. And then he confirms it, his authority, with a divine sign. So here's the the, the story of the paralytic, right? His friends lower him down. And by the way, who you hang out with matters. Um, His friends lower him through the ceiling. And Jesus looks at him and before... And and I always think about this guy. uh, Probably a young man because you wouldn't live very long without, you know... ...even high-tech medicine. Look how long Christopher Reeve lived, right? What was it, 10, 15 years And he died, right? Because infection sets in, bed sores set in. Unless you're on top of it constantly, somebody in that condition doesn't have a a great life expectancy. And so here's this man, and he's probably a young man. He was probably vigorous just a week or two before. And now, you know, maybe he falls off a roof. Maybe he's working like Joseph did as a carpenter. By the way, carpenters back then worked with wood and stone because there wasn't a lot of wood to work with. So think of like a tradesman or something like that. And and maybe he falls off a building that's being constructed. He breaks his neck. And so his friends, you know, he said his goodbyes, right? He probably has a life expectancy in weeks. He'll never play with his kids again. He'll never make love with his wife again. He'll never go to work again. He'll never run around again. All the things, you know, and he's, and and beyond that, you're going to start thinking about eternity, uh, I, I told a story a few months ago about a young man. My brother played uh, in a band with him. And he was a Jewish kid. And uh, his older brother was a very well-known drummer. They actually made a movie about his, his band um, because they broke up before they had, had made it big. But they were selling like, you know, 10,000 records even on a local market. And this guy was working in an adult bookstore. Somebody came in, shot him. Proceeded to rob the store, saw that he was still breathing, shot him again, and left. And so his younger brother, who was friends with my brother, went to my brother Robin and said, Just tell me that Todd is in heaven. Just tell me he's in heaven. And what my brother said was, Look, (laughs) um, I don't know, and I can't tell you where he is. I know you're looking. But he says, One thing I do know is that Jesus wants him in heaven more than you want him in heaven. And he said, and if any time, if any time somebody, maybe that was why he didn't die after the first bullet. Maybe the Lord was giving him time to repent. Maybe the Lord was, had you know, brought to his mind somebody who had shared the gospel with him. And he was able in his heart to give his life to Christ. Um, I imagine that's where this man coming down through the ceiling would have been. Because he's thinking about meeting his maker. He, he doesn't have long to live. And so he comes down, and imagine you're, you, you know, you're looking up. And finally you come down, and the first person you look lock eyes with is Jesus. And you're looking into the eyes of God. What would be the first word you would want to hear? I'm healing you? That's not what Jesus said, is it? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine the joy he must have felt. I knew a young woman, and she was, um, she was paralyzed from the... Neck down, she was in our church. Uh, and uh, somebody was constantly, every time she would go to the altar, she came out of a Jehovah Witness background, God save, found the Lord. And she would be down at the altar every couple of weeks. Um, she was just so excited about Jesus. And somebody well-meaning was constantly going, laying hands on her. You're going to walk again. You're going. And I know he meant well. But finally she came into my office, and, and it was amazing what she said. She said, I appreciate and people praying for me and I would love to walk again. But I have much bigger issues I need to deal with. Wow. (laughs) Uh, She knew, she knew what the Lord was doing in her heart. I would love to walk again, but I will one day. That's a done deal. I'm gonna walk again and I'm gonna walk for eternity. I would love to walk on this earth. Be great to get out of this wheelchair, but that's gonna happen. What I really want to happen is to become like Jesus. And that's a distraction. Everybody keeps bringing it back to the flesh and the physical. And look, if somebody asks for healing, fantastic. But just the fact that she was there. Had another man lost his son, 13 years old. I've talked about him. He was my son's best friend. This young man would be in our house every day. My wife would watch this young man so that his dad could go to work. and You know, five days a week. I was there the morning he died. My son was with him. ...with him when, I, when he died, and, and he, you know, I, I met him one time. I was going out to drop trash in the dumpster, and, you know, kind of like their apartments here. He, he lived in those apartments, and he came over and said, and we were talking. He said, you know, there are countries if I lived because he had three sons. He said, there's countries if I lived in, I probably would have buried two of my boys by now. See, that kind of stuff comes from the Lord, right? You don't have that kind of mentality and that attitude. Without, just like Jesus speaking to Peter and Peter says, you know, you are the son of God. And he says, flesh and blood didn't reveal. How did the thief on the cross go from mocking him one minute? And the Bible says they both mocked him. But at some point, he, he realized who he was mocking and who was next to him. And, and went from saying, why don't you get us off the cross to saying, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Has to come from the Lord. And I just, I just picture that moment of the man coming down, looking into the eyes of Jesus, realizing he was the Son of God, and hearing, son, your sins are forgiven. And of course, everybody, who does this man think he is? He's blaspheming. And he says, which is, which is harder to do? <laughs> to, to say your sins are forgiven, right? Or to say, rise, take up your mat, and walk? ...but that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he says to the man, rise, take up your mat and go home. See, there was no doubt that Jesus taught who he was. The disciples were (laughs) hard-headed. They were hard-hearted. But he said it to his disciples. He said it to the crowds. He said it uh, when he was standing in front of Pilate. He said it in front of the Pharisees. He never denied ever... His divinity. Whenever he, he had the chance to do so, he claimed to be who he was. We were just talking about this uh, yesterday. He claimed to both exist in the present and in the past. I uh, was having dinner with some some uh, new family in the church last night, and and um, I said, the grammar sounds terrible, but there's no other way to say it. Before Abraham was, I am. Sounds terrible grammar. It should have been before Abraham was, I was. That wouldn't have been true. And Jesus only spoke truth. Before Abraham was, I physically am right now. Is Even as I stand before you today. Because Jesus couldn't go back in time and meet himself. There'd be two Jesuses, right? Before Abraham was, I am. I stand where before Abraham was born. I am, as Revelation says, the beginning and the end, as we just sung, the Alpha and the Omega. Time is contained within me. I'm not contained within time. Only God could make that claim. Uh, Jesus was charged under oath in Matthew 26 64. Confess are you the Son of God? And he, he responds by saying you have said it yourself. In other words the things that you're doing are proving that I am. You're fulfilling prophecy right now. All the things prophesied about the Son of God all the things that Daniel talked about about the Son of Man, all that Isaiah spoke, you're proving right now. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, and in other words, if that isn't enough, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, why that was so mind-blowing is the Son of Man, and we talked about this a week or two ago, We sometimes think the Son of God is a greater claim to divinity. But many people, even Jesus said, the Psalms say you shall be called gods? Right? So many people were called Son of God or Sons of God or because, in other words, they exhibit the attributes of God. The Son of Man, however, if you go back to the book of Daniel, you just Google it right now on your phone. Google Daniel, Son of Man. And you read the prophecies... This wasn't about an eternal being... ...seated at the right hand of heaven... ...and the throne of heaven... ...who would... ...and Jesus saying... ...quoting Daniel... ...you shall see the Son of Man... ...sitting at the right hand of power... ...and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now why that was so mind-blowing is... ...occasionally... ...in scripture... ...you see somebody brought into... ...the presence of God. And Paul says whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, right? So Isaiah's in the throne room. Is he actually in the body? Is he out of the body? John is brought up. Paul says he was brought up. So occasionally someone be brought up to the throne room of heaven, and what's their immediate response? They fall like, (laughs) I'm a dead man. Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm undone. John says, falls at the angel's feet, I'm a dead man. So coming even into the presence of God was an overwhelming thing. Standing in the presence of God ...was even unheard of. Taking a seat beside the Father. (laughs) Sitting in the throne room... ...at the throne of the right hand of the Father. That's what Daniel said with the Son of Man was. Or who the Son of Man was. And so when Jesus says... ...you've said it yourself by what you're doing. And that was what that phrase meant. Right? Well, look look at what you're doing. It'd be like very similar to... ...are you the Son of Man... What did he say to John the Baptist when John the Baptist said, Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Jesus said, Look around. What do you see happening? Blind people are seeing. The lame are walking, right? The poor are having the gospel ministered to them. In other words, he's quoting Scripture because that's what it said Messiah, that's what the Old Testament said Messiah would do. So that's how he answered him. So when he says, You've said it yourself, he's referring back to what, what does Scripture say. ...about the Son of Man. What does Scripture say about the Christ? You've said it yourself. But nevertheless, I tell you. So, so no denying here, no mistaking here. You shall see the Son of Man... ...coming on the right hand, at the right hand of power... ...and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. That was just... And, and by the way, if you, if, you don't, if you think that's ambiguous... ...His audience didn't. Because remember what the Pharisees did. They tore their robes. They cried out, blasphemy... This man does not deserve to live. Rid the earth with him. Crucify him. They had no doubt at what he just said... ...even if you and I don't get the, the, the lingo. Um, some have made the claim... ...well, they were just so overwhelmed by this great presence... ...like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, right? They just sort of inflated it. Uh, because even, after, even all, uh, those who don't see Jesus as Messiah... ...will admit he was perhaps the greatest human being who ever lived. I have atheist friends... ...who will say, well, I'm not a Christian, I would never be a Christian, I'm an atheist, but man, Jesus. Greatest teacher. I love the teachings of Jesus. Even people who who don't believe in God will look at the teachings of Jesus and be overwhelmed. Thomas Jefferson wanted to strip the, the New Testament of all the miracles of Jesus. But he wanted to leave intact all the teachings of Jesus. So maybe they were just so overwhelmed by this man's greatness... But the argument goes, the first century followers of Jesus were so unaccustomed to such extraordinary greatness, they were not able to process who he was. They were just overwhelmed by it. Uh, Much as modern man with all our learning and technology might be perceived as somebody... Imagine if you went back in time a thousand years ago. How might somebody see you? Jesus was so far ahead of his time. And he is. I mean, I'm, I'm... Fairly well acquainted, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but fairly well acquainted with the religious writings of that time and before. Roman writings, philosophy, Greek writings, philosophy, Jewish writings, Middle Eastern writings. The teachings of Jesus were so far, so ridiculously beyond. I mean, when you read Jesus, His words, it, it comes across very modern. It doesn't sound you know, uh, archaic or anything like that. It doesn't sound old school. Somebody could say that stuff to you today. And if you'd never heard it, you'd be like, yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, and so that's the, that's the argument, that maybe he was just so far beyond anybody, anything anybody would ever seen, they were just overwhelmed with him. I would point out the Apostle Paul. I, it's interesting. I have a friend who was an atheist, and I began to get more and more into, you know, ...the Bible and, and studying it. I was probably 19, 20 years old. And th- this friend of mine, he said, you know what? The, only pro- the thing that really trips me up the most is Paul. It's really... Tri- I, it, like, I don't have an explanation for Paul. Because <laughs> Paul was this staunch opponent of Christianity. He admits he didn't know Jesus during his early ministry... He was also an exceedingly educated man, and and with all the pride that comes with that, uh, more so than many of his peers, and he speaks about that in Galatians 1. He would never have been predisposed in any way to see a human being as divine, being who he was, educated, Jew, Pharisee, very learned, especially based on secondhand testimony. So the paradox that that, that we run into is that Paul understood that the scriptures that taught that anyone that was hung on a tree was under a curse. And that included, obviously, a cross. They didn't make a distinction whether it was a living tree or a dead tree. Anybody hung on a tree was cursed. Deuteronomy 21, 22. If a man guilty of a capital offense is put to death and his body is hung on a tree, you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. It's very similar. Years ago when I was young, you would see a lot of um, bus bombings in, in Israel, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. You guys that are older, you might remember. You'd see, when's the last time you heard of a bus bombing? You know why? Bus drivers started carrying vials of pig's blood because any Muslim who died being contaminated with pig's blood was cursed. And so, if you, blew me, you blow me up, this is going all over the bus. And it stopped. And so, very similar, the Jews in the Old Testament, anybody who is hung on a tree, put that person in the ground as quick as you can because they are under a curse. And Paul knew this. And after Jesus had appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road... He had to reconcile his own experience with Jesus with the truth of God's word. And Paul began to understand Jesus was cursed, but not for his own sins. He was cursed for our sins. And he began to to deal with that and and synchronize those truths into this very early verse in in Galatians chapter 3. I'm not seeing that come up. Okay, there we go. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is a great theological statement, guys. And sometimes we'll read stuff and not realize that the brilliance of Paul's mind as a theologian. Because what Paul was doing for us was he was going through his extent? It's, it's not by accident that God called this man... who was the prodigy of prodigies coming up. He was the next great rabbi. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel... meaning he was the, the, the inheritor, the protege of this great rabbi. Gamaliel was so well known... that even if Jesus had not lived in the first century... Jews would still be talking about Gamaliel... as they do other great rabbis throughout the centuries... And Paul says that he, and he speaks of this, that he, that was one of the things he talks about of, of his pedigree and of his portfolio, that, hey, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. This is who I was. I advanced in Judaism beyond my... I'm the wonderkin coming up. And God selects him and uses that mind. We talked about this very early on. That why are there little subtle differences between the Gospels? There wouldn't be if the Holy Spirit just simply dictated all right, grab a pen, write down everything I'm going to say. What God did is he used Luke as a physician. He used Mark, who was this very zealous young man, right? He uses John to write the gospel that, of love and of faith. And Paul is this man of great learning who God chose to reconcile these Old Testament truths that are very difficult. And how do they relate to Christianity? Because he, would, he anticipated This is going to, if this tripped me up, this is going to trip a lot of people up. How is my Messiah, how is the one I worship as God, cursed? How is that possible? And that was his statement. He redeemed us from the curse. It's this great exchange by becoming a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hung in a tree. He He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ... ...so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2... ...that Jesus prior to the incarnation... ...boy, that should have been a lot bigger... um, ...existed in the form of God. I'll read it to you. Though He existed in the form of God... ...He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped... ...but emptied Himself taking the form of a bondservant... ...and being made in the likeness of man... ...and being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the interesting thing, first of all, that word bondservant means a slave. But to me, the more interesting word there is form. ...taking the form. Um, because he uses that word earlier... ...though he existed in the form of God... ...he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant. And the Greek word is morph. And, and it sounds just like we would use it. He morphed into something else. What the Greek word means is an exact replica. Okay? So if you could clone me, right, that, that individual... ...would be exactly as human as I am... ...right down to the DNA. It would be indistinguishable. You could not... If if somebody dug up the graves of me and my clone... ...500 years later... ...they would not be able to distinguish the two. Right? Same height, same bone structure... ...everything would be exactly the same. And that's what that word means. He was in the form of God... So it wasn't like it was just like he was a shapeshifter that looked like God. The Greek is saying it's, it's the exact replica of God. And he became an exact replica of a slave. And so this is where we get the idea of, of we talked about this before, the hypostatic union, the, the God-man, that Jesus was 100% God. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man. He couldn't be. Because he was in the exact form of God, 100%. And he became the exact form of a bondservant, 100%. So he was 100% God and 100% man. So Paul would have had Isaiah 45, 23 in view... ...when he wrote this passage, which states... ...every knee will bow and every tongue will solemnly affirm. By the time Paul wrote Colossians... ...this theology was even more entrenched. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation for by him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities all things were created by him and for him he is before all things and in him all things hold together and he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning by the way God claims to be the the, the beginning and the end he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that everything ...he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him... ...and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things... ...whether things on earth or things in heaven... ...by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. What's interesting about this is... ...one of the unique attributes of God is creative ability. Angels don't have creative ability. Elders don't have creative ability. Living creatures don't have creative ability. Only God had creative ability. Even when we're talking about Satan, Satan doesn't create anything. He perverts, right? So God gives art, Satan perverts it. God gives language, Satan corrupts it. God gives music, Satan perverts that. That's, that's the MO of Satan. He can't create anything. What, whenever I hear somebody say, I remember years ago, somebody was talking about uh, rock and roll being the devil's music. I I don't, I, I don't like that term, and I'll tell you why. Because people would say the same thing about Halloween. That's the Devil's Day. I'm like, when did God give any day over to Satan? Like, when did God say, you know what? I'll back off. You can have this day. So let's be careful with those phrases. But I asked him. I said, what is it about the music that you object to? And he said, well, it's in the beat. Well, here's the problem. Um, almost all rock music is a 4-4 four, four beat, which is the same beat as I knew this guy was, used. We Bring the Sacrifice of Praise, What a Mighty God We Serve, Victory and gee. all those old-time camp meeting songs that he played were all 4-4 four, four songs. So I pointed that out. And he said, well, you know, it's the way it's presented, it's volume. So I said, okay. Went over to an amplifier, I said, I'm, I'll plug my guitar in, and I will turn it up, and you tell me when we hit sin. Music can be used for the devil's purposes. There's no doubt about that. We see that in this generation. Satan will, but what Satan does is he takes what God gives. I remember being at a trans-Siberian orchestra show, and I mean, it was loud and it was bombastic. They started out as a heavy metal band called Sabotage, a very bad one, by the way. Um, And and they actually did the song uh, Christmas in Sarajevo under their original name. It sold about 14 copies. I think their mom bought them all. Um, Nobody... They re-released it as Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and now they're literally like every year like the biggest touring group. And they have a, an amazing show. And there was a song they were doing. I'd never heard it before, and it was called First Snow. And it was very powerful, and the lights were going off. And I mean, it was, and I was like, this should be the soundtrack of the rapture. I mean, it was glorious. It was powerful. You just, you just felt like if Jesus is coming back, he's not coming back to you. Nah, nah. You know, I mean, he's not coming back to some lullaby. He's not coming back to, you know, this, this cute little ballad or anything like that. This sounded glorious and powerful. And I thought, boy, this, this sounds like if, 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 the, if the clouds split today, this would be the kind of song I would hear, right? And, it, and it, it engenders worship is what it did. And I realized what Satan loves to do is take certain things. And, and some of it is obviously the lyrics, Right, lifestyle, lyrics, goals, and graphics. Look, look at the four things that any group, any artist is presenting. Life, their lifestyle, their lyrics, their goals, and their graphics. And you can tell, right? I mean, a lot of people want to make an excuse for it, but I just look at it and say that. But what I won't say is that Satan created something because he can't. He doesn't have the ability to do that. He only perverts. And yet, and yet, what is Galatians one sixteen? For by him "...all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible... ...whether thrones, powers, rulers, or authorities... ...all things were created, listen to this, by Him and for Him." And that's an amazing statement because in the Old Testament it says... "...all things were created for God." So here's Paul in about the year 53, 55 A.D. "...all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus." Um, Real quick, we talked about Hebrews... and we'll probably be studying that in the next uh, study. Hebrews 1, in these last days... He, meaning God, has spoken to us by His Son... whom He appointed heir of all things... and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory... and the exact representation, there's that same idea, of His being... sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven... So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And I I remember arguing with a Jehovah witness this very verse. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the throne, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Uh, Revelation 5, and and this is when we see, uh, I mean, if there's anywhere where worship is practiced perfectly, it's what? In the throne room of heaven right? We can argue about, well, we should, and me and my brother were doing this, arguing about worship, because he was really upset that he went to a church, and they were putting, like, the musicians on the side screens. And I'm like, dude, you sound like the old guy, get off my lawn, right? I mean, you're, are we really getting to that age? I said, maybe it's just a 20-something that they put in charge of the camera, and he thought it looked cool. And I would much rather let the kid put it up there because he's excited that he's helping the gospel to go forth. Shouldn't we at our age be mature enough to get past stuff like that? But it always seems to be the old people <laughs> that are like, you know, that doesn't glorify God, bless God. you know. And I'm like, shouldn't you, shouldn't you be the model? Even if everything goes wrong, shouldn't you still be able to worship? Shouldn't you still be able to encourage? I mean, after all, you're—it's like I—I I was telling the couple because they'd been married for like 30 years, and I'm like, "You guys have gone this long. I mean, it's not going to be long until you die anyway. Just stick it out and you know, make make it work for the rest of your life. I mean, it's it's good counsel, but, but uh, but when you think about the throne room, I mean, this is perfect worship. There's no mistakes. There's no immaturity. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen, meaning this is true. And the elders fell down in worship. All the beings of heaven, the angels, the elders, the living creatures, the only other inhabitants of heaven at that time were those who were, had already died and those who came out of the great tribulation in the book of Revelation But the inhabitants, the the long-term residents of heaven, angels, elders, living creatures, are declaring and worshiping Jesus as Lord. So let's look at worship in the New Testament. Whenever man or a false object is worshiped, God is angered. Paul and Barnabas refuse such worship. Don't, Don't do that. Don't bring us sacrifices. We're just men. Herod Agrippa accepts worship in Acts 12. And he struck down and he dies. A pretty horrible death, by the way. But every time Jesus was worshipped from his birth, we talked about the Magi, 18 months old, they fell down and worship him, right? Jesus, when he calms the waves, calms the seas, his disciples worshipped him. Thomas, put your hands in my wrists and in my side. What does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. He, he could have just said, I'm convinced. You're rose from the dead. But he doesn't do that, he worships him. And John, when he goes up before the, into heaven, he falls down before an angel, and the angel says, don't do it. But then he sees Jesus, and he falls at his feet. And Jesus never rejects worship from his birth until the time of his ascension. He always... It, there were plenty of chances for Jesus to say, wait, 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 you don't get it. But every time somebody asked him if he was divine he confirmed it. Every time somebody worshipped him, he confirmed it. His disciples from their earliest writings claimed he was Emmanuel, the Word, the living God, the Word was God. There was no doubt from the very beginning. Didn't take, I know Aaron thought it was funny because I do too. It didn't take them 320 some odd years to figure out he was God. They knew right away when he rose from the dead, he was who he claimed to be let's have a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this time of study. Lord, it's, it's a beautiful night out, and we could be doing other things, but God, how great it is to nourish our soul. How wonderful it is that you give us the opportunity to worship you, to sing praise to you, and Lord, forgive us when it becomes routine. We, we we, are so easily, we so easily forget that we're engaging in the activity reserved for elders and angels and living creatures. This is a great and a glorious calling you've given us... ...to be able to worship you, to be able to study your word... ...and then to be able to declare the living Lord Jesus. Father, I ask that you put somebody in our lives this very week. Father, Lord, that doesn't know you, that doesn't know your son... ...let us model Jesus, let us show them the love of Jesus... ...let us share our testimony... And let us share the truth that Jesus spoke. We ask that you would give us this privilege, not only to us, but to all of our brothers and sisters in the Bridge Church. And throughout this mission field, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.